If you have your Bibles there, we're going to read together from Joel chapter 2, starting at verse 1. That's Joel 2, verse 1, and you can find that on page 913 of your pew Bible. Now, if you remember from last week, we said that Joel is all about despair and deliverance in the day of the Lord. So, the day of the Lord dominates this scene, this, this event where we see God's direct and unmissable engagement with human affairs. Um, we will respond to that with either despair or hope for deliverance, depending on where we stand. So in our reading this evening, we are still in the, in the first part of the book where the day of the Lord brings despair. So as we, as we read, try and see some of the themes from last week escalated here. But try as well to have a particular sensitivity for what we learn here about the character of God. This is the word of the Lord from Joel chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in the ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops. Like a crackling of fire consuming stubble. Like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defences without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses. Like thieves, they enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened. And the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number. And mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his chamber and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. 
Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? May God bless the reading of his word. Let's, let's pray together. Lord God, we come before you this evening longing for a deeper and richer relationship with you. So we plead that you open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us. That you reveal more of yourself to us through your word. And you would lead us along the paths that you have for us. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Now sometimes you might have noticed that we come to passages that are a little hard to hear. It's not particularly joyous to walk through these sections on despair and judgment, but we do need to hear the whole counsel of God. And one of the great things about the prophets is that if we do the the, the work of really listening to what they are saying, then we can learn a load about the character of God and about how we should respond to that. The danger is that we read these prophecies that have already had a historical fulfillment and and just read them as history. So maybe we look at Joel and and try to find in Israel's history where there was a locust invasion and, and sort of leave it there. But what we always have to understand is that these images have what we call a a near fulfillment and and a far fulfillment. So there might have been a historical event that we can point to in Joel's time, but but that event is acting as as a picture of something that is fulfilled much later, either in Christ and so as a direct relevance to us, or to something that hasn't yet been fulfilled, something that we should be anticipating to come in the future. Lots of what we talk about when we're studying the Bible has this already, not yet feel to it. So we want to be able to look at these passages as, as more than just interesting historical events, We want to see their prophetic relevance to us as well. And that's what we're going to try and do this evening as we look at the the two big parts of this passage. Firstly, the despair in verses 1 to 11. That's the deepening crisis. And then we get the call to repentance in verses 12 to 17. So just like chapter 1, crisis and call. Let's let's dive in. Look with me to verse 1. Now, at the end of chapter 1 there, we saw Joel give a model for calling out to the Lord, but but the people haven't yet responded. And so here we get this, what should be a terrifying escalation. Blow the trumpets in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Here we get an announcement of the day of the Lord. Now, Different people are going to interpret this section as either a human army invading or a continuation of the the locusts in chapter 1. But the important thing is to see this as an escalation of chapter 1. Part of the the same phenomenon that points to the day of the Lord. So we get trumpets blown as if to announce an invading army. but, But the crucial thing is that they are blown in Zion. On God's holy mountain. So at the time, people could have imagined an invading army coming to to another city, but it's always felt that the Lord would protect Jerusalem, that no army is going to come and take it. 
And so the idea that the Zion itself is under threat is like striking at the heart of people. Now this will be important later on, but note down or remember that, that the coming of the day of the Lord has profound effects for the people of God. This is no storm that, that we sort of just wait out in, in our castles whilst others feel the effects. This is for us. And what we get in verse 2 is an image of what it's going to be like. They have darkness and gloom. They have clouds and blackness. Like part of reading of the prophets is in seeing the imagery and themes that they draw from other parts of Scripture. So think back to the Exodus that the people are brought out of Egypt and they go to Sinai where God meets with Moses. And in that account we get the people trembling, the sound of trumpets, clouds and darkness. In Job, when they talk about God coming, we read things like, I am terrified before him, the thick darkness covers my face. And when David sings about God, he uses images of, of trembling and dark clouds under his feet. So what Joel is doing here is, is drawing on the tradition to create an understanding that God is present in all of this. And where chapter 1 saw God's actions as incomparable and unforgettable here we're supposed to see them as being inescapable if you read verses 3 to 10 again you'll see that these is these overlapping waves that give us a sense of unstoppable movement and creates these two scenes the before and the after verse 3 before them the land is like the garden of eden behind them a desert waste the invaders scale the walls, plunge through defences, climb into houses. There's, there's terror here. That word for anguish in verse 6, it, it's what they actually used in the context of, of childbirth and the, and the involuntary loss of control that comes with severe pain. So this advancement is of, of crippling panic that extends in verse 10 to the cosmic realm. And then described in verse 11 as... Dreadful. We're asked, who can endure it? This is a hopeless situation. Who can endure it? It isn't asking us to, to raise our hands and say, I can. I, I'm worthy. I, I'm good enough, strong enough, smart enough. It's showing that no one can endure this. That all the vestiges of worldly success and power and morality and wealth and, and whatever else we trust in cannot hide us from the Lord's judgment or justify ourselves from his decrees. So if you take notes, write down that the main point of all of this section is that God's judgment is inescapable. The crisis that is outlined by chapters 1 and 2 is one that alters reality an unforgettable incomparable inescapable event where god comes in power and judgment and so we can look to the already to the near fulfillment of this where where the locusts came in joel's time but we should also look forward to a time when when god will come again to judge the living and the dead a time when his unmissable engagement with human affairs will alter reality for all mankind. 
wonder how often do we really consider that? That God will come again in power to judge. To modern ears, it's, it's kind of more of a joke than anything, isn't it? Jesus is coming, look busy. And yet, if you think back to it, is that not exactly what the devil did in the garden? You won't die. Don't worry about it. The lie that, that warped nature and broke this world, oh, it's not serious. No need to worry, it's a bit of a joke. The liar's tactics haven't changed. Decrease the seriousness of God's word so that we subtly ignore it. Maybe we shake our heads at the street preacher warning of hell to come and, and tut that those tactics will never work. We stammer that it's much better for us to just to say nothing about anything and wait for people to ask us why we're just so nice. The hard truth is that most people don't come to the cross because they don't think that they need to. They look around and they see their wealth or, or success or how good they're being or, or at least being better than someone else that they know. They've listened to the, the whispers of the enemy and justified themselves in their own eyes. But even in the church, we get really awkward talking about sin. We have this unspoken agreement that, that no one is perfect and, and so we all accept that. So, so no need to go into specifics, right? No need to bear that awkward, open wound that is on our hearts. And when we think about the end times, our judgment will certainly be different for us. Don't, don't doubt grace here in any of this. But our, our trust in the cross shouldn't lead us to make sin feel like it's trivial. When we treat sin like a headache, we can, we can just take a couple of paracetamol, we'll, we'll get through the day. No one needs to know about it. A little prayer and we can paint on the mask that we want to present to the rest of the world. But when we see sin as a cancer and our lives speeding towards the end, we, we throw off all pretenses. Because the, the cancer patient, they, they go to hospital, they, they ask for help, they change their lives because the threat is imminent and it's serious. And that is what meditating on the day of the Lord is supposed to cultivate in us. A, a sense of imminence, of, of urgency, of the honest, inescapable seriousness of our sin. Your porn addiction is not something that's going to go away on its own. Your pride is not going to be tempered by its old age. You won't get bored of gossiping or being greedy or laziness. And your heart is not going to just soften over time. We fool ourselves when we see the deadline for change as being just years ahead. We might be assured of victory in the end, but, but that doesn't mean that, that sin has no consequences for us now. This passage tells us that God will come, that the day is ahead of us, and that we cannot escape it. Again, that doesn't mean that we forget all that we know about grace and forgiveness and mercy. But it does mean that we take that day seriously. 
that it affects our lives in a concrete way. And so we need to be aware of the day and let it impact how God would have us live. What is being asked of us here is, are you ready to meet your maker? In the silence that meets that question in verse 11, who can endure it? God speaks. Verse 12, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. What we get here is a, a prophetic call to repentance. Now, usually this formula has a specific sin attached to it, but, but here in Joel, we, we don't get one. Instead, we get general covenantal language, references to the law and images of what would happen, happen if they neglected the covenant. The issue here is that the people have broken covenant, have wandered away from God. And so God calls them to repent. To, to truly repent, not just in the tearing of clothes in a, a performative kind of way, but a tearing of their hearts in grief for their sin. This is like a parent wanting their kids to, to actually be sorry and not just say the word. God desires true repentance. Mercy, not sacrifice, as Hosea puts it, or, or walking humbly with your God rather than thousands of rams, like Micah says. Last week we talked about how God wanted us to long for him. And now we see that repentance is not about saying the magic words. Instead, this is about an orientation of the heart. It is once we've been brought to a realization of our wrongdoing, once we have an awareness of our sin and what we have done, that we are called to come to God openly, honestly, broken feeling the weight of what we are doing and so the response in verse 15 has another trumpet sound not to call the people to defend themselves against the crisis but to call a sacred assembly all the people are gathered the children and babies aren't excluded showing the covenantal overtones of this and even the newlyweds notice there who represent all those that would have usually been excluded from duties they're brought here as well. This need supersedes all practices and traditions. The priests are weeping again and they, they quote the Psalms asking, why should the nation say, where is their God? This is a, a deeply covenantal, corporate confession of sin. I wonder if you've ever seen anyone broken with their own sin and just confessing it to God pleading with him it's not really us is it it doesn't fill, fill with the, the northern Irish stoicism and inbuilt pride it seems maybe a bit a showy or just you know a, a bit too much and yes there's a time and place and we have to do all this with wisdom but if we have 
no opportunity for this, no ability to express our brokenness before God, no drive to confess our sins to others, it subconsciously gives us this impression that sin is sort of okay. Obviously, it's not great, but sure, we can live with it. But that's not the impression that we get here. Here we get the whole nation coming together and rending their hearts. We get in verse 17 the priests mediating between God and man, weeping and pleading for the people, desperate to be rid of this sin and shame. Maybe you've heard it said that if you were the only sinner, Christ would have still died for you. That's how much you mean to God. This verse invites us to see that if we were the only sinner, Christ would still have had to have died for us to bring us close to God. That our sin is so serious that it required a perfect, spotless sacrifice to take our place. That the wrath that the just wrath of God was so great, the cup so full, that no created thing could take it. Nothing could advert it. Sure, the, the blood of animals was gaining a temporary reprieve, but that's kind of like a, a shield. That the wrath, that's God's holiness in the face of our sin, that remained. <coughs> but when Jesus drank the cup, he drained that wrath. He took it upon himself. Our punishment, what we deserved, placed upon him, the cup empty, the wrath propitiated. And look, that's great news for us. The wrath is gone. We can come into life with Christ. We don't need to fear that judgment day. I've said before that that, that judgment is, is, the, is the appointing of us to sonship. It's us recognizing and seeing what Christ has done for us. Grace that we have received through the cross does not change any of this we can trust in that grace but it also shows us just how terrible sin is but there was nothing on this earth that could have done what Christ did how it required such great a cost for us to come to God we need a saviour because sin separates man and God. And so sin, whilst we know we have the victory over it in the end, is not something we should ever be comfortable with seeing in our hearts today. It's not something that we should allow or, or, or something that we should put up with, even if we know that we'll never be perfect. We should see it for what it is, a, a dark oil slick that spreads over every part of our lives cancer that corrupts every part of us. Something we should want nothing to do with. Sin is something we should be all too aware of so we never judge those people out there for the speck in their own eye without doing anything about the log in our own. We need to be aware of the seriousness of sin in our lives so that we can overcome that inbuilt reticence and cultural unease and actually confess our sin. This verse calls us to repent by showing us that, that sin is serious. But it also shows us what repentance brings and why we can repent. Look with me firstly to verse 14. So after this command to rend our hearts and repent, we see that God 
may relent and leave behind a blessing. And what does that blessing look like? Is it a return to the life they had before, a renewal of wealth and comfort, land, seed and blessing? Actually, it's much more profound than that, isn't it? Better than circumstantial blessing. Notice that what might be left behind is a way for them to worship again. Last week we said how the most devastating part of this judgment was because there was a removal of the means of worship. Grain offerings and drink offerings weren't an option, so they couldn't come to God. But what repentance leads to is a way to come back to Him. Maybe when we think of our lives, we can see the effects of sin, and and we kind of come to, to God in repentance because we just want the pain to stop. We want our lives back. We want to go back to the way things were. That's pretty understandable on the emotional front. But in effect, what is happening is that that God is asking us to come back to him, to come into communion with him. And we are asking for circumstantial blessing. And so in the ashes of our lives, God offers offers us more than just a building project. He offers us himself. A way to let go of those broken dreams and instead cling to him. Repentance here brings a re-establishment of communion with God. Maybe we can subconsciously think that repentance is what we did when we first became a Christian and and that's us, we're we're covered. We've repented, box ticked. Kind of think of it like the husband who says, I told my wife on the wedding day that I loved her, I'll let her know if that changes. But we know that once isn't enough to cultivate a relationship We can see the absurdity of that quote. And so we have to be constantly at work in this area. One commentator I read said that faith is like breathing in fresh air. Repentance is like breathing out the now toxic gas. And so we have to be constantly breathing in. But we also have to breathe out and expel that bad air. Maybe for you there's something that you're holding on to. Some air that you aren't breathing out and it's slowly poisoning your soul. Maybe you've noticed your faith, your faith life, sorry, become stale. Maybe you've seen other things just take priority there. And God certainly hasn't and won't abandon you. But maybe holding on to that sin is preventing an experience of him that you desperately need. If that's you, as it is all of us at some point in our lives, then we need to find ways of repenting. We need to practice repentance. That doesn't mean just add some vague things that you feel bad about to your prayer time. Instead, it's, it's going to mean defining the sin. Write it down if you need to. Talk with someone if that helps. But, but get it clear in your head. And then when you have that clear look to God, don't, don't get defensive and fight hard against making excuses. But bring the sin to him. Ask God to let you see it as he does. Allow yourself to grieve its presence in your life. Thomas Watson said, Till sin be bitter... Christ will not be sweet. 
It's okay to grieve our sin, to be honest before God. But then remind yourself of the gospel. Know that God has taken that sin from you and ask him to comfort you through the Spirit. And finally, pray that you would change and obey God, that you wouldn't fall into that sin again. And work hard at that. Make it meaningful. Rend your hearts and not just your clothes. Define your sin, grieve your sin, be comforted in the gospel, and then walk away from your sin. The mechanics of it seem pretty simple, but to grow in this, we need to get over that Northern Irish reluctance about repenting. So how do we feel comfortable doing this? Well, verse 13 frames this whole thing in the character of God. It tells us why crying out to the Lord is the right response to the day and how God's character invites and encourages us to do it. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. We should do this. We should repent because God is like this. Joel here quotes Exodus where God seems to be is seen to be gracious and merciful in the face of inescapable judgment. And so what he appeals to here in the face of this inescapable judgment is the character of God. What Joel is saying is, look at who the Lord is. Look at what he has done, how faithful he is, how gracious and merciful he is. Don't you know you're safe with him? so easy to catch yourself pretending to say sorry to God but for really just trying to excuse yourself before him we only, we only do that when we see God as if he were a man someone we can trick or, or paint ourselves in a good light in front of but when we see God as God who sees our hearts who knows us completely then we can drop all the pretense we can know that he has seen us at our worst, and he accepts us still. That we are his children. And so the only way that we are going to be able to cultivate that trust in God is by spending time meditating upon who he is, on his character and works, reading large portions of scripture, seeing how God works throughout the history of his church. Seeing God like that, coming to him in repentance, and receiving renewed means of worshipping him is the ongoing, deepening work of the Spirit in our lives as he conforms us to Christ. It's not something that we do and move on from. It's something that we need to make part of our lives. Thinking about sin and despair isn't the, the happiest of activities. And maybe I've pushed the boat a bit too much. I, I, I don't know. But what I'm convinced of is that knowing the vileness of sin in our lives while seeing the character of God allows us to worship him more and more fully as we appreciate just what the gospel has done for us. The bitterness of sin highlighting the sweetness of Christ. And if we can learn to repent all the more, then we will experience that sweetness all the more that in my life I need to know his goodness I need to long for him to rejoice in him I need to know that sin isn't something that I can just live with but something that I need to put to death 
something I need to bring to God and be healed of and freed from. Something that shows me that I need my Savior. Maybe this evening hasn't been the kind of service that is going to get you dancing out the door. But I pray that it has convicted you to look again at your walk with God. To see how serious sin is in our lives and how good it is to be able to come to God and truly repent. To experience his grace afresh. We wanted to give you a bit more time to try and connect with that and respond to what God has been saying to you. So we're, we're going to sing a couple of songs in a moment and, and try and get us to, to lift our eyes to God. And once we finish that, we're going to share the grace and, and there's tea and coffee afterwards as there always is. But, but if you need to stay around here and just reflect on what's being said, feel, feel free just to stay in your seats. You can ask the people around you, as, as I see people do each week, to come alongside you and, and pray for you if you'd like. I'll be hanging around as well. If anyone wants to chat, just, just wave me over. But whether you do this here or at some point during the week, don't let this be something that just passes you by. This book that we're going through shows us how seriously God takes this as a pattern in our lives. So let's trust him and walk with him in that. And the first stage in that is to see God for who he is. So we're going to sing now to, to, to focus ourselves upon him, to deepen that sense of trust in him so that we can truly repent knowing that we are safe in Christ who has already paid the price of our sins and taken them from us as far as the east is from the west. So let's come now and let's worship our God. Amen.